0: From the pages of the Blizzard, the football quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. Before we get underway with episode 49, a couple of quick notices. Firstly, that a Blizzard panel featuring Jonathan Wilson, Rory Smith, and Jack Pitt Brook will be appearing at the Manchester Football Writing Festival on Thursday, the 1st of September. The event takes place at the National Football Museum in Manchester City Centre and for details on tickets, head either to the Manchester Football Writing Festival on Twitter at mcrfwf or theblizzard.co.uk slash events. As next week's episode will be our 50th, we've decided to offer up another listener's choice. If you have a favourite article from our back catalogue that we're yet to cover on the podcast, then send your suggestions in this week. You can either email podcast at theblizzard.co.uk, respond to our post on Facebook, or tweet us at blizzard B-L-Z-Z-R-D, with your suggestions. But now, on to episode 49, which features In Memoriam by James Montague, first published in issue 11 in December 2013. 72, 74, 22. These are the numbers that Al-Ahli Football Club now live and die by. Football is a numbers game, filled with facts and vintage years to be compared and contrasted, to be argued about and fought over. Attendances, assists, clean sheets, sometimes even goals. But not in Egypt. In Egypt, football has been deprived of almost all of its statistical fuel, as well as its petty controversies and concerns. There are no more league matches to discuss. No goals between local rivals to dissect. No attendances to weigh against the previous years. There are just three numbers that exist above everything else. 72, 74, 22. 72. The number of al Ahly fans killed at a football match in Port Said on the 1st of February 2012. al Ahly, Africa's greatest ever club team, travelled from Cairo to Port Said for what should have been a routine League victory. It was a little over a year since the January Revolution, and Egypt was still a hopeful, if anarchic, place. Tahrir Square, the epicentre of the revolution, was still occupied by a coalition of activists and protesters. Almost every shade of political opinion was represented there, be they secular or Islamist, united by the single cause of ousting Hosni Mubarak. Then came the hard bit, building the new Egypt. A military government by then existed, with a splendidly Orwellian acronym, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, SCAF. But the protests and the arguments continued. Several thousand Al-Akhli fans travelled up to Port Said to see their team play al It was always a tough place to come. The last game there had seen Al-Akhli's fans run out of town, but they returned. They lost 3-1, a rare thing in Egyptian football for a team that has won the league 36 times. When the final whistle blew, thousands of al Masry fans rushed onto the pitch like an invading army. The fans were coming, sprinting. I knew they hated me and all the players. All the players ran, Ahmed Fatih, Ali's right-back, would later tell me. In video footage, the players can be seen sprinting back to the dressing room just as a human wave crashes into the al Ahly stand. At first Fatty was just relieved to have escaped. I didn't know what was happening outside, he said, but something was happening outside. After this, they killed the boys. Not the men, the boys. The lights in the stadium had been turned off, the gates to the Al-Akhli stand locked. 72 young men were crushed, beaten and stabbed to death. Fatty only knew how serious things had become when the bodies and walking wounded started arriving in the dressing room. One of the fans came to the room and said, You have a problem outside. Someone has been killed. And then another has been killed, and another, he recalled. The al Ahly players watched as fans were brought in, some dead, some dying. After this, another comes in, and he has a wound. Fatty slowly ran a finger from the left side of his temple to his chin, to illustrate the gash on the young man's face. 74. The dead were all members of the Allah, Alakli's ultras group. They had become much more than a group of supporters. They had played an important, some say crucial part in the January Revolution. During the Mubarak years there were no political parties, independent unions or opposition groups allowed. But there were the terraces, and it was there, at Cairo International Stadium's Curve Nord, that the Allah became an anti authoritarian thorn in the regime's side. They would fight the police on a weekly basis. But then members and leaders would be arrested. Their numbers exploded. Songs began to be sung against the regime, demanding greater freedoms. Those songs would later become the soundtrack, and their distinctive red flag and eagle atop a shield would become the aesthetic of the revolution. They say violence is in our blood. How dare we fight our rights? Stupid regime, hear what we say. Freedom, freedom, freedom but it was more than flags and songs. Come the revolution, the ultras from all of Egypt's clubs were a 15,000 strong in Tahrir Square, the only group that had any experience fighting the hated police force. Mubarak was toppled. The ultras had helped to win the freedom they had sung for, and then 72 of their members were dead in suspicious circumstances. Who locked the gates? Why were there no police on the pitch? Why were the floodlights cut? Who had a vested interest in punishing the Alawi? Immediately, the season was cancelled, and El mazri thrown out of the league. Protests and vigils for the dead followed, not for the seventy-two, but for the seventy-four. The Alawi considered this number the number of mourning: the seventy-two that died in Port Said, and two members who were killed during the revolution. They were the Shahid, the martyrs, for the Alawi. The link between the revolution and Port Said was clear. They would use any means necessary to prevent the league from restarting until they secured justice for the 74. 22. Mohamed Trika is celebrating with his teammates on the pitch of the Stade Olympique de Radès in Tunisia. al Ahly have just won their record 7th African Champions League title. A year later they would win an 8th, beating Esperance 2-1, 3-2 on aggregate the striker mohammed jeddo naji fired them ahead just before half time before walid soliman scored a brilliant breakaway second with half an hour left but they would not be here if it wasn't for abu trika he is more than simply one of the greatest players africa has ever produced he is the team's soul the club's moral compass and beloved in africa and the middle east he wears 22 on his shirt but this is perhaps the greatest victory the sweetest or at least the most bittersweet, and certainly the hardest fought. Abu Trika, like almost all of the players celebrating on the pitch, had been there in Port Said. He had held a mortally injured supporter on that day. You know the story, Bob Bradley, the Egyptian national team's American coach, would later recount. The fan says to Abu Trika, Captain, I always wanted to meet you. The fan died in Abu Trika's arms. With the league cancelled, the African Champions League was all that was left for the club. Its players had been deeply traumatised by what they had seen. Several, including Trika, had quit in the immediate aftermath before returning. The players, the club and the fans vowed to win the title to honour the dead. They had survived Port Said, but that wasn't the only setback they had to overcome. Their coach quit. They survived a coup in Mali. Protests had seen two matches come within minutes of being cancelled. They had fought back on the pitch when seemingly dead and buried. All of this while a revolution was still taking place in the background and while they played their home games behind closed doors. And now they celebrate. Abu iconic number 22 cannot be seen anymore. The team is wearing t shirts with the names of the 72 on the front. The players dedicate their victory to the men who died at Port Said. In the stands, A few thousand Al-Akhli fans have made the trip to Tunisia. Flags with the number 74 are flown. It is a few weeks since the tragedy of Port Said. A march has begun on Port Said Street, behind Alexandria's famous library. Tens of thousands of men and women fill the streets as far as the eye can see. Those with the loudest voices sit on their friends' shoulders to face the crowd and lead them in revolutionary song. They are here to commemorate the death of Mahmoud Gandour. He was the leader of the Alexandria chapter of the Ultras Alawi, but died in Port Said. Walking with the thousands of others is Shady Mohammed, Al Akhli's most decorated captain, having won four African Champions Leagues and six league titles. He doesn't play for Al Akhli anymore, but that doesn't matter. I played for Al for eleven years, and I must fight for these people, he says as the crowd chants around him. 72 people died. This is difficult. More young people, 14 and 16 years old. But I am coming to support all the fans. There is no such thing as a former al player. The bond between player and fan has always been closer at al than at any other club of its size in world football. The fans have always expected victory, true. But the players have always expected their support, too. There is an affinity between the two that has always existed. Their love is given and their love is returned. Shady didn't think twice about coming to the march. Akhli win everything, understand? The problem isn't just now or one month ago, it is for years, he says, when asked to explain why he believes the Port Said tragedy took place. Port Said don't like Akhli, but if the police are strong, good. If they are not strong... Then they go to the other side and kill the fans. My friend, the Ultras Zalawi. they have a good mentality. They support the fans every way they can. The police must protect them. This is not football. It takes three hours for the march to snake through the streets. All the while they are cheered by the watching crowds on the balconies. An old lady holds up a handmade placard denouncing the army. The march eventually stops at the gates of the headquarters for Egypt's army in the north of the country. Troops stare back at topped-armed APCs. There is a tank and a dozen foot soldiers. All their guns are trained on the crowd. The troops don't move. The gates stay locked. The protesters kneel down and pray before peacefully dispersing. Thoughts switch to the African Champions League. Initially it was thought that al Ahly would pull out of the tournament, given how traumatised their players were but the Alawi urged the players to win it for the Martyrs of Port Said. Abu Trika and the club's legendary midfielder Mohammed Barakat agreed to rescind their initial decision to retire. al Ahly were drawn in the first round against Ethiopia Coffee from Addis Ababa. The first match ended nil-nil, but security concerns meant the second leg almost wasn't played. It was only a few hours before kickoff that permission was granted for the match to take place at Cairo's Military Academy Stadium. No fans were allowed in. In deathly quiet, al ahly won 3-0. Mohamed Trika scored twice. When he scored, he fell to his knees and kissed the grass. But arguably, al ahlys greatest match came next. Hossam al-Badri had always been a faithful servant to al ahly He had risen through the youth ranks in the 1970s and played for eight years in the first team before injury finally cut his career short. He had played for the club at various levels for 17 years. He returned in a coaching role as assistant to Manuel Jose, the Portuguese manager, who would lead al through the greatest and most successful period in the club's history. He had briefly taken charge of the team when Jose had left, but both returned to prepare for the second round match against Stade Malien. No sooner had the team landed in the Malian capital of Bamako than a coup began, The players were stuck in their hotel for a week after their 1-0 loss, as vicious street-to-street fighting played out around them. We remember when we were waiting for the flight to take us back. Every minute, every hour, waiting for the plane to Mali, Al-Badri recalled with a shake of the head. Actually, Al-Akli had a very bad time for almost one and a half years. We tried to change the problems to motivations. It looks as though Al-Akli's Champions League campaign is over, They quickly go 1-0 down in the first half of the second leg, again in the empty military stadium in Cairo. They need three goals in the second half to progress. Mohamed Trika is brought on at half-time. This is his time. His first goal after 54 minutes is a stunning 30-yard free kick into the top left-hand corner. His second in the 82nd minute is a penalty that he skewers into the bottom left-hand corner. The third, six minutes later, is perhaps the finest. Abutryka starts the move and feeds the ball out to the left. The cross isn't dealt with by the Stade Malien centre-back. Abutryka is near the penalty spot. He swivels and volleys the ball just inside the left-hand post. He runs in a zigzag, unable to decide which direction is best to celebrate in before he is engulfed by bodies. They qualify for the group stage 3-2 on aggregate. The Stade Malien tie is enough for Manuel Jose. He resigns and is replaced by El Badri, largely because, with no league, no one else will take the job. El Badri is now in charge of the team for the group stages. al Ahly are drawn in a tough group alongside TP Mazembe from DR Congo, Ghana's Berakum Chelsea and their perpetual Kyrian rival Zamalek. They will lose only one game, against TP Mazembe and Lubumbashi, and top the group. But the team were without their 22 for the final group game against Zamalek. It is September now, seven months since the tragedy of Port Said, and still the league has not resumed. As the Alawi had promised, they successfully boycotted the league until a verdict in the Port Said case had been delivered. Seventy three people had been arrested and were awaiting trial, mainly Al Masri fans, but also key security figures. In some cases, the Alawi would picket stadiums where matches were about to take place. The Egyptian FA so tainted by their close association to the Mubarak regime, crumbled in front of the Alawi's opposition. As the trials are delayed, so is the league. But in September, the FA arranges for the season opener, the Super Cup, to take place anyway in the Vasque Borg al-Arab stadium outside Alexandria. The Alawi vow to storm the stadium if the match goes ahead. Mohamed Abutrika refuses to play. I'm not participating in the game for fears that another massacre will happen in Borg al-Arab Stadium in Alexandria, he says in a statement. For the sake of avoiding bloodshed, the game should not have been played so that the Port Said massacre doesn't happen again. al ban Abu Trika for two months for his refusal to play. He will miss the semi-final against Sunshine Stars of Nigeria. It is now an hour and a half before Al Ahly are due to play Sunshine Stars in the second leg of the African Champions League semi final. The first match, in Ajebu Ode in southwest Nigeria, had ended 3 3. Geddo had scored twice, but Al Ahly had twice thrown away a lead. This match in Cairo is again to be played behind closed doors, but the Sunshine Stars players are nowhere to be seen. They are trapped in their team hotel. Outside, it is inundated by Egyptian protesters. They aren't the usual protesters you would see at Tahrir Square, nor are they the Al-Ahui, but a gathering of professional footballers, angry that their livelihood has been taken away from them. They are angry that Al-Ahli are still allowed to play in the Champions League, tapping into a resentment that had existed long before the revolution that the club received special treatment. The players had hoped that if they barricaded the Nigerian team in the hotel, the match would be cancelled. Athli would be kicked out of the competition, and their cause would finally be understood. Instead, the Alawi sprung into action. We only found out during rush hour that the players were having a march, says Mohammed, a founding member of the Alawi, when we talked about the protest. We embarked on a mission to free the Sunshine Stars players. We contacted each other by BBM and SMS and congregated. There were fights with the players. I think one of the players had a gun. They prevented the Sunshine players from going to the game. We had to let the game go on. We cleared the way for the bus. The Alahui led the Nigerian players to the bus and arranged an escort to the stadium. The Nigerian journalist Colin Udo, who was embedded with the Sunshine Stars, saw the whole thing. When the players were coming down, the fans were applauding them, he recalls. On the drive to the stadium, 2,000 fans were lining the road applauding us. Inside the bus, they didn't understand it. They thought they were angry with them. It is a unique position to see fans with that much power. The final obstacle to the final had been overcome. al Ahly beat Sunshine Stars 1-0. That is how we want to honour the people who died at Port Said, Mohammed explains. We honour them by winning this trophy. And honour them they did. Somebody still cuts and waters the grass at Port Said Stadium. It is almost exactly a year since the 72 fans of al were killed here. It is midday, and I can see the fresh green grass through the locked gates. The lines have been painted on the pitch, and the sprinklers are pfting. No football has taken place for a year, but someone still loves this stadium, still loves this grass. The green pitch feels like the only splash of colour in the city. The Port Said Stadium had been refurbished for the 2009 Under-20 World Cup, but it resembles any other crumbling 1950s relic found in any other dying town in the Middle East. And Port Said is dying. It sits at the mouth of the vital Suez Canal, but it is isolated and down on its luck. Unemployment was high here even before the revolution and Egypt's subsequent economic collapse. Near the stadium, burned-out cars and barricades litter the street. The previous night I had arrived in Port Said an hour before an army curfew had come into force. 30 people had been killed in the city after the initial verdict in the Port Said trial had been delivered. 21 al-Mazri fans were sentenced to death. The families of the accused and the guilty stormed the prison, killing two policemen. The police fired back. Port Said had burned every night since, and more deaths had followed. A cycle of funeral, protests and killing funeral, protests and killing. The Port Saidis I had spoken to talked of a conspiracy, of how al-Masri was being sacrificed to prevent Cairo from descending into chaos. That night, another protest snaked through Port Said's streets, this time in defiance of the curfew. One protester was shot dead. It is late morning now, and the gates of the Port Said Stadium are locked. I circle its grey walls looking for a way in, Past graffiti from the Al Mazri ultras, the Green Eagles, denouncing the verdict. Another says, "No TV, go to the stadium." Each door is firmly shut with brand new padlocks, but one gate has been carelessly left unlocked. I push it open. It is next to the gate where the crush took place, where the majority of the Alawi perished on the first of February 2012. The stairwell where they were crushed looks horrifically tiny. The gates that had eventually sheared away from their concrete pillars still lay discarded on the floor 12 months on. It looked as if it had happened yesterday. I take some pictures, but I'm chased out of the stadium by a security guard shouting that I am an Israeli spy. That weekend, the Football League finally returns to Egypt. The Alawi had successfully prevented the league from restarting three times over the past six months, until justice for the 74 had been served. They believed it had. A few months later, there were more convictions too, including for the head of security for Port Said. The prosecutor's report alleged some form of collusion. A meeting had taken place before the match, between the police and some of the 21 Al-Mazri fans sentenced to death. But many questions remain unanswered over what happened on that night in Port Said. Africa's new champions begin their first league match in a year, in an empty stadium on the outskirts of Cairo. They win 1-0, but one number is missing. 22. al Ahly, even with the Champions League success, still have a financial black hole to fill. Geddo, the goal-scoring hero from the final, and Ahmed Fatih are sent out on loan to Hull City in the English Championship. Mohamed Abutrika is loaned out to Bani Yas in the UAE League, where he thrives. He wears the number 72 on his shirt. He will also later announce his retirement. The Egyptian League won't last long. It will finish without a conclusion, thanks to further instability. Mohammed Morsi will be deposed in an army-led coup. Hundreds more will die protesting on Egypt's streets. But, for now, this is still the future. Back in Port Said, I run from the stadium for fear of being lynched as an alleged Israeli spy, back to the burned-out cars. Hundreds of people are here now, gathered outside a mosque. As in the preceding days... It is the funeral of a young man killed in clashes with the police. The body is carried through the crowd on a stretcher, wrapped tightly in linen, back towards the barricades. That was In Memoriam by James Montague, first published in Issue 11 in December 2013. Also in Issue 11, Jonathan Wilson on how the nature of international football leads inevitably to sluggish football, Uli Hesse on the tactical revolution that led to the transformation of the German game, Andy Thomas on the strange world of the backup goalkeeper, and our greatest games feature looks back to Dundee 1, Dundee United 2, in the Scottish Premier League at Dens Park in May 1983. Issue 11, like all issues of the Blizzard, is available on a pay-what-you-like basis at theblizzard.co.uk. That means that digital editions in a range of formats can be yours for as little as a penny apiece, while our print edition starts at just £6 plus postage and packing. Subscription options are available, and you can also find us on the Kindle and Google Play stores. Don't forget that we're appearing at the Manchester Football Writing Festival on Thursday the 1st of September. For details of tickets, head to theblizzard.co.uk slash events. Also don't forget, episode 50 is a listener's choice, so if you have a favourite article from our back catalogue that we haven't covered yet, get in touch this week, and we'll choose one lucky winner for next week's podcast. In the meantime, if you have any feedback, comments or suggestions about the podcast, you can email podcast at theblizzard.co.uk or find us on Twitter at blizzard,